1879, there were a group of about 12 families in a ranching and farming community that had been doing a Bible study, and they came together for Bible study on a monthly basis, but they looked around and said, there aren't many churches in the areas. The, the Methodist church is formed, but they, they sprinkle and we dunk, and we're Baptists, so we're going to start a church in this community. And they started a church in central Texas, and this church community met once a month, and even the Methodists allowed them to use their building because they were the only church in town that had a building and preached the gospel for neighbors. And so they began to meet, and over the years, this church grew and was able to get land and plant and grow a building. And to this day, this is a gospel witness into a community that I grew up in, a gospel witness that is 142 years old because a group of farmers and ranchers decided we're going to do more than just organize a Bible study. We're going to plant a church where a church is needed. And two generations of my family have benefited from the ministry of First Baptist Church, Lano, Texas, in a little town. It was a place where I grew up where my parents learned more about the scriptures. It was a place where I learned the storyline of the Bible and heard the gospel on Sunday morning, on Sunday night, and Wednesday night. A faithful gospel witness in central Texas. And one more story to tell. There was a man who had come to Christ in his 20s, and he was one of those guys that whatever he touched it turned to gold. And so this man was in the military and he worked through the ranks of the military and he got out of the military and he was a CEO of a steel working plant in the middle of America. But the Lord had given him three children and the youngest of his children was two years old and got an infection and died. This man knew Jesus, but he went into this deep, dark depression so much so that at night his wife would play the piano and he would lay on the floor and cry himself to sleep because he lost his daughter. But yet God began to move in his heart to grow and to be discipled. And at age 48, a CEO of a steel company in the middle of America decided that he was going to go get trained to be a pastor. So he moved his family to North Texas and he moved his family near Dallas Theological Seminary down the road in Denton, Texas, and he went through seminary, and he got out of seminary, and he was about 52 years old, and nobody wanted him to be a pastor of their church. He was a little bit too old, apparently. So you know what he decided to do? Rather than just decide to go back to the steel industry and make a lot of money, he said, I'm just going to plant my own church. God has called me to this. He's planted me here. I'm going to take some people. So they started this Bible study in Denton, Texas, with about 10 families that he knew from work. And then he met a guy who's about 25 years old who played football for North Texas State and finished up and he was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ and he was a pastor at another church. But this church got a new pastor and that new pastor didn't believe the gospel or the truth of the Bible and so he was looking for a job. And those two men met at a Denny's on the north side of Denton, Texas. And the rest is history. They planted a church together and they moved like seven times, been there, done that, to different schools and places until somebody gave them some land. And now Denton Bible Church, Pastor Tommy Nelson, founder Mel Summerall, the effect that that church plant has had has been exponential, exponential for 
planting other churches, for raising up guys like me to be pastors, for seeing the gospel reach to every area of the world. But let me ask you a question, and I asked the question this week. What if those churches were never planted? What if they never were? What if those 12 families that started this little church in Central Texas just decided to leave it at a Bible study? What if Mel Summerall, when rejected from finding a church and pastoring an existing church, said, I guess I'm just going to go back to mid-America and be a CEO? Now, we know that God is providential and sovereign over all things, and He works His will according to His purpose. We know that. But I want you to think about the churches that you've been a part of. I want you to think about the gospel witness and how you came to know Christ, how you grew in Christ, how a church has affected your marriage and your ministry and your deep relationships with other people. I want you to think about the churches that you've been a part of. And I know that not all of those churches are great experiences. I realize that. People are broken. And yet the gospel witness of churches has an incredible impact on us. It has an incredible impact on our families. See, whether in hard times or good times, local churches are God's outpost for the gospel light in the dark world. See, in the same way that farming matters for the food that's put on your table, in the same way that hospitals and doctors matter for your health, see, church planting matters because the church's mission matters. Today, I want to show you on Church Planting Sunday, I want you to see the biblical centrality and wisdom of church planting. And I want you to see what it takes to plant churches. So first, the implicit, not explicit, but the implicit biblical centrality of church planting. And you find that in the Great Commission. But before we get there, I want you to understand a few things before we get to the Great Commission. I want you to understand and remember who our God is, this God who's given the church this commission to go out. And I'm going to do that by just thinking, asking you to think about the opening pages of Scripture. When you open the first pages of Scripture and you meet God, there's some things that come out really quickly when we meet God in Genesis 1. The first thing is He's a God of power. I mean, He forms the earth out of the word of His power. He speaks and things happen. He's a God of power. And the other thing that you see in Genesis 1 is that He forms and He fills. He forms the earth and then He fills the earth with sun, moon, stars, animals, plant life, and the highest of his creation, his image bearers, he fills the earth with image bearers, you and me. And you know what he does with them when you get to Genesis 1.28? What you see in Genesis 1.28 is he says to them, be fruitful, image bearers, and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. He wants his image to be born out throughout his world for his glory. That's what he desires his creation to do. That's what he desires his image bears to do, is to be light in his universe. And yet you see the fall, right? You see the fall and the effects of the fall on that. And yet he continues to tell them what? Be fruitful and multiply. And you get to chapter 12, and you know what he does? He forms something else. He forms a people. The nation Israel out of Abraham. And Isaac and Jacob, he's forming a people to make his name great. And what's the command? The command is to fill his earth. 
And if you think about the, the nation Israel, their primary purpose was for the rest of the nations who were broken and fallen and, and falling into false gods to look at Yahweh and say, He's the one true God. So the purpose of the nation Israel was to bring light to the other nations around them. And you see all over and over again in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 11 is one example. You see this promise of Messiah, right? The root of Jesse. And in that text, it says that he will bring the knowledge of the Lord and fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. I want you to think about the ocean and how much water is filled with it. And so this Messiah would bring God's glory to the earth. And this is exactly what you see when you turn to the Gospels. In the Gospels you see, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what does he do? He gathers this ragamuffin group of people together, the disciples, and what does he say to them? As the Father has sent me, I send you. He takes the 70, two by two, and he sends them out. And then Jesus dies on a cross and rises from the dead for our sins to conquer death, but it's not over. And you come to what we know as the Great Commission. Remember the Sea of Galilee when Jesus appears to the disciples and you take a passage like Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is the Great Commission. I think we have it there. The Great Commission says what? And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's power. Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. So he's forming a people, the church, to bring light to all the nations. So he wants to fill his world with his glory through his people. And what do they do? Look at the different things they're called to do. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Teaching them to obey, right? And I will be with you to the end of the age. So I want you to just think about where you see those things happening. You see those things like baptizing and making disciples and the ordinance of baptism where? If you turn to the book of Acts, you see that in the church. Remember what Jesus said before he ascended in the Sea of Galilee in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? But you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that's chapters 1 through 12 of Acts, and to the ends of the earth. God is still, he's still about filling the earth with his glory. And he wants to do that now through his church. So he's filled you with the Holy Spirit if you know him. And he wants to fill the earth with his glory in the Great Commission. So here's the question. How, this is the question of the day, how did the disciples interpret the Great Commission? What would they do? What do you see in the book of Acts? When you get to Acts chapter 2, you see people coming to know Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come and people coming to know Jesus. And you see the Jerusalem church forming and what are they doing? They're baptizing. They're sitting under the teaching of the apostles from the scriptures, so the word is being proclaimed. 
They're worshiping God, they're serving and caring for one another, and they're going out and evangelizing. And what happens? You know how the church grows and, and goes forth from Jerusalem? You're not going to like this. Persecution. Remember the Jerusalem church is being persecuted and what happens to Stephen? He gets stoned. And what, what does the Bible say? It says, and they scattered. They scattered to Antioch. They scattered to Iconium and Lystra. And what happened? The Jews continued to persecute them. And the more they persecuted them, the more people scattered. And what did they do? They proclaimed the gospel wherever they went. And then when you come to chapter 14, and I think we have it here, and you need to see this. So they're clearly sharing the gospel. They're clearly proclaiming the gospel. But look at what it says. It says, when they had preached the gospel to these cities, this is Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. That's the first missionary journey. And Antioch is like the hub church for the early Christian church, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed, here it is, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, every church. So here's what's happened. They've They've been scattered, there's preaching the gospel, they're making disciples, and then churches are organized and formed in all of those places. Take a look at your New Testament. The second, third missionary journeys, every letter that you have in the New Testament are letters from Paul or one of the disciples to a specific church that was formed because the gospel went forth. And so this is why I say it's implicit. So how did the apostles interpret the Great Commission? One guy said it this way, and I think this kind of encapsulates the whole thing. The apostles didn't just evangelize, they congregationalized. The apostles didn't just evangelize, they congregationalized. That's a new word, I guess. Spell check doesn't go for it. But that's what they did. They planted churches. In the book of Titus, you see Paul sending Titus to Crete. And there are all these churches in Crete because they'd visited these places, they'd proclaimed the gospel, they had strengthened these people. And what does he say? He says, appoint elders in these churches. Make, crooked, make straight what's crooked. And so here's the thought. The primary biblical mission strategy to making disciples, interpreted by the disciples themselves, is the implicit... Not explicit, but the implicit call to plant churches. Outpost for the gospel. Now, that may be a lot for you to take in this morning. Because when, I'll tell you, as someone who studied the Bible for a long time, I heard that for the first time and thought, I've never really looked at the Great Commission that way. <laughs> I've never looked at it that way. And here's the thing. When I say primary, implicit, here's what I'm asking you. Here's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying it's right and it's good for you to witness to people in your family and in your work and around you. You should keep doing that. That's the Great Commission, okay? You, sh you should continue to make disciples. You should continue to, to help believers grow and mature. That's part of the Great Commission. But it's also important macro level wise for churches to plant other churches. And maybe you say this morning, hey, that was for them, and this is a good point, by the way, that was for them, that's not necessarily for us. Because there weren't any churches, there were synagogues. Like, in Israel, there's just synagogues and there were no churches. Um, you might say, when they went to Europe and all these other places, there were just temples to foreign gods. And so, 
Yeah, they needed churches then, but we really don't need churches now. There's churches on every corner. And I would say to you this. Number one, we live in a very saturated place compared to the rest of the world. There's probably never been a place on the planet where there are more churches than the Bible Belt. Okay? And so when you look around, you see a lot of churches. And maybe you say, well, there's plenty of churches. Why don't we need more? We're just competing. But here's the point. Just statistically, I want to I talk about this a little bit. Um, today, there's a church for one in every 1,000 people in the United States. One church for every 1,000 people. In the South, or the Bible Belt, I, you know, we have this problem with the South because people in the real South don't include Texas, so I'm, tr- I'm trying to do this. The Bible Belt, right? People have argued with me about that deal. And this... It, where we live, it's about 1 in 750 people. But the people who've studied church planting and looked at even at our country from 1800 to 1940 something, they look at it and say, gospel saturation, church saturation is about 1 in 500. That's when you can really have investment in almost every community where there's a real gospel teaching church. We can talk about that later. But if you look at the rest of the nation, Places like New York or East Coast, West Coast, and it's like 1 in 7,000 or 1 in 20,000. Guess what? 1 in 20,000 is New England. And New England is functionally an unreached people group. Just like the place that's never heard the gospel. If you've ever been there or tried to go to church there, you would find out that old historic gospel churches are now taverns or bookstores or gas stations even. You see, one in a thousand isn't enough, and one in 750 isn't even enough. They say one in 500 is is scratching the surface. And we're not even talking about churches that are evangelical and really are preaching the gospel. So more churches are needed here even. And so, biblically, God wants his name to be made great. And there's an implicit centrality to planting churches and fulfilling the Great Commission task. It's a great need here And everywhere else as well. If you go any other place in the world, there are very, very few gospel-centered churches that are preaching the gospel. See, we are a sent-out people, and this is still important for us. But the question is, is is it wise for us to pursue? Like, give me some more biblical wisdom. I see what they did in the early church, but give me some biblical wisdom toward planting churches and the importance of it. And I would give you a number of things. I would say this. See, planting new churches gives a more of a platform for preaching the gospel. And that's what you see in the New Testament. You see in Romans chapter 10, for example. I think we have that text. Romans chapter 10. What do we know about preaching the word? How will then they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what has been heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So one of the primary ways in which people come to know Christ is hearing the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel. And so one of the things biblically and the wisdom of church planning is it multiplies the preaching effort. It gives new platforms for preaching. 
And I would say to you this morning, if you're here and you don't yet know Christ, I want you to look at verse 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And maybe you're here and you say, well, I'm pretty good. You know, I think I'm pretty good. Well, go ask your mom or your dad. Go ask your co-workers how good you really are. Jesus says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And none of us measure up. So hear the good news of the gospel that Christ has died for you on a cross for your sins. That you might have life. That's the good news of the gospel. But there's something else. See, the second thing is is that the... New churches can plunder new territory. You know that the prince of the power of the air is the one who, in a sense, God has given granted rulership of this earth for now. So there is hard, dark ground all around us where the gospel hasn't reached. You see it in the example where Jesus in Mark chapter 3 is coming and there's the demon-possessed man. And he says, you've got to deal with that before you can come into the house. That has to be plundered first. And so what new churches do, they go into new territory. And the beauty of the gospel, and you've seen this, I've seen this, perhaps this is your testimony, I know it's mine, is when I went into a church in Denton, Texas, I saw people loving and caring for one another. I saw what John 13 describes, where Jesus describes how they will know you for your love for one another. And that thing, that kind of thing rocks people's world. 1 John 4 says that the invisible God is made visible as we love one another. Anybody have that testimony where they saw Christians really acting like Christians and loving one another and caring for one another in a community? That rocked my world in college. Absolutely rocked my world that people that I already respected came together in the body of Christ and loved one another and cared for one another. So it plunders new territory. One guy said it this way, where there's no church or not many Christians, the the devil conducts his business unhindered. And we want to plunder new territory. We want to see the gospel reach new territory. So planting churches plants the gospel in communities. And it helps expose people to the Christian community. Seekers who might want to seek and find. And then last, I would say this. And this is really important for any church. I would say it this way, planting new churches protects our missional edge, or if I said it negatively, it protects us against missional drift, because here's what's happened, it's kind of like gravity, or it's kind of like your marriage, if you're not pursuing your marriage, if you're not pursuing your spouse, you're going the other way, you're not in neutral in your marriage, if you're not pursuing it, and caring for it, and as a church, The older a church gets, the harder it is to keep its missional edge. And what church planning does is it makes us look externally rather than internally. And that's what churches typically do. Do you know how churches decline? You know the statistics on churches declining? It's because they get focused, they navel gaze. They get focused on their own stuff and they don't think externally about the community out here. They don't think about the gospel and its impact out there. There's a right and good place for us to care for one another For us to encourage one another. We need that. Many of you are out in the world every day. And you need the encouragement and strength of a body of Christ. But our church cannot get so internally focused. That we lose sight of the mission that God has called us toward. That bring him glory. And so if you're engaged in church planning. It forces the issue. If engaged in external thing. It forces the issue. 
There's a guy that I know in North um, in, in New England, and he planted a church there, a Dallas Seminary guy, and planted a church there in Hanover, Vermont. Let me tell you, that is an unreached people group. And yet this church began to grow, and it got to be about 12 years old. We're 10, y'all. 12 years old, and the pastors and the elders of the church sense that, okay, we're doing well, we've got our doctrine right, and we're caring for people well, but, but where are we looking outward? How are we trying to reach anybody with the gospel? And so they started a training center for pastors in New England because they're looking around going, there aren't enough churches, they're all dying. And they began a, a, a training center for pastors. It's probably the best training center for pastors that I've seen. And they've invested in like 40 pastors over the last 10 years. And they've planted about 16 churches in New England. And they've taken back some of those very buildings that were taverns that used to be historic churches. So that's how a church says we're not going to lose our missional edge. Think about the church in, in Ephesus. What do you know about the church in Ephesus? You know what Jesus said about the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the churches? Man, they got their doctrine right. And they were, they were that kind of church that would train up. Paul was there, it looks like, for a few years, training up people. They had an institute. They taught the word. They were faithful at it. But you know what Jesus said? He said, hey, this is, you're, you're doing great. You're persevering. But you've lost your first love. You've lost your love for Christ. And here's what happens when you love, lose your love for Christ. When you lose your love for Christ... 2 Corinthians 5 doesn't happen because it's out of the overflow of your love for Christ that compels you to share the gospel, to tell other people the good news of the gospel. And so you lose this missional edge when you lose your love for Christ. You may get your doctrine right, but you've got to get the mission right too. And Jesus says, you need to repent and you need to change or I'm going to take your lampstand. These are people that got Bible right, y'all. <laughs> So protects missional edge. Another couple of things that I would tell you, just practical wisdom. New churches reach young people better than existing churches. If you look at church plants, they reach a younger generation. Not only that, they reach new people better than existing older churches. It's just a fact. So a lot of reasons and wisdom, biblical wisdom for planting churches. So my question for us is, are we losing or have we lost our missional edge as a church? How are we as a church thinking outwardly about the gospel and its need to go out? Are we investing intentionally? Are we just internally focused? See, there's biblical and practical reasons for church planting. There's an implicit call, I think, in the Great Commission. But how in the world do you do it if you want to do it, right? <laughs> How in the world do you plant a church? That sounds daunting to do. Well, I'm going to share just a couple of thoughts about kind of some steps in the fuel of church planting. Here's the reality. It sounds really great. It sounds like it's something we need to do, but it's costly. It's costly for time. It's costly financially. And most of all, it costs people. This church has planted two other churches in its 10-year history. And it's cost us all of the, it cost this church some of those things. It's cost us relationships where a person said, hey, I'm going to go and plant a church and I'm going to go to Bryan, Texas, or I'm going to go to San Marcos, Texas. You ever had that thing in your community group where you got too big and you had to multiply your group? And that was hard because you developed deep community with those people. 
But for the sake of the mission, it's better that you, and, and logistics is better that you multiply. But that's hard if you've done life with people. And so we've got to resolve to, to be sacrificial. Spurgeon, which here's the Bible, and then Spurgeon is like right there, right? So Spurgeon said it this way about church planting. We encourage our members to leave us, to found new churches. We seek to persuade them even to do so. We ask them to scatter throughout the land to become the godly seed. Think about that image. Which God shall bless. I believe that so long as we do this, we shall prosper. He's talking about missional edge. A willingness to go out. This is Spurgeon. You've got to recruit people. You've got to recruit a church planter to do this. Usually, the mark is bring somebody in or raise somebody up from within your church to be here for two or three years so they understand the church's DNA. You can vet them to make sure. They can vet you to make sure. And then you send them out. And sending out is hard. It's like letting your kid go when they're 18 to college. It's a hard thing to do. But it's worth it. But that's the way of the cross, right? The way of the cross is, is kind of backwards from the world. What is gained to the world is loss, right? You lose your life to gain it. This is kind of backwards economy that God has for us. But that's the way of the cross. And we've got to remain steadfast. We've, it's costly. It's hard work. We've got to abound in the good work of it. And last, I would say this, and I think this will be encouraging for some of you. You've got to be wise about timing. One of the challenges that I see even in our own network of Acts 29 churches is you get people with a lot of passion to do it, but they're not yet ready or able to really do it, and they try and they tax their people. And it doesn't work. Even though the passion is there, you launch too fast, and your church is not ready for it. And I would tell you right now with the way... That where the church is, I don't think we're yet ready. We, we have the ability to train up people, to bring people in, to cast vision for it. But I don't think we're ready for that right now. So we have to be wise about timing. Because it's an, a huge endeavor. But what's the fuel? Because here's the thing. I just told you some strategy. I just told you some strategy. But you know what Jesus said in Matthew 16? I'm going to build my church. So we can have the strategy that we want all day long. But Jesus is going to build his church. You know, the Bible says, ready the horse for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So we have to plan and think and strategize, but God's going to do this thing. It's Jesus' blood-bought church. He's going to do it. So we've got to realize that this is God's work. Let me close with this. I've told you a few stories about church planting and new churches. Many of you could get up here and, and tell the story about C3 better than I, and we'll talk about this next week. But the story of C3 is some people in Brenham, Texas, a guy named Casey, decided that God had called him to plant a church in Magnolia, Texas, and he started in his house or as an apartment. And this church has met at a number of different places. And this church planted out of that, and this church has been sustained by the people who have come here and met at a variety of places and there's been ups and downs to this church plant like any but God has been faithful and lives have been changed marriages have been rescued churches have been planted children have come to faith see if you've appreciated the ministry of this church you've appreciated the need for new churches to plant church planting has blessed your life I hope here you're here
See, church planning is central to the Great Commission. It's just good biblical wisdom. We want to pursue it. And ultimately, church planting matters because God's glory matters. You see, God is a God who comes in power, who fills the earth. He forms a people, the church, and He fills us with His Spirit. And He wants to fill the world with gospel light outposts that people might come and see and taste that the Lord is good, to know His Son. This is why church planting matters. And as a church, I would tell you that it matters to us. Planted two churches, 10% of our operating budget goes out the door, not to us, to church planting ministries. That's some great return on investment, by the way. So if you're giving to this church, there's great investment in that for you. A return on investment to see the gospel go out into all kinds of places in the earth. We aim to plant more churches. We want to train more pastors and leaders for church planting. And as much as I don't want any of you to leave, we want to hold you loosely to go, hey, if you want to go out, we will send you. And we want to pray that God would do that in our church. And we want to pray for our community that new church plants would come, that they might be a blessing to the people in our community who are lost. So church planning matters because God's glory matters. Let me pray. Father, we desire that your name be made great in our lives. We confess that we are jars of clay. We are cracked pots. We are broken people, but you have put us back together. You are molding us into the image of your son. But you've called us, like the disciples, to be sent people And sent people look around and say, how can I be a missionary to the people who come into my business, the people who are in my neighborhood, the the family that lives next to me. So Lord, I pray for us. I pray that our daily lives would come into contact with people who need Jesus that might see the light of Christ. That you would give us opportunities that we would take them to share the truth of the gospel, that we would invest in the Great Commission in that way. But also, I pray for us as a church, and I pray for the members of this church, that we would be about multiplying our efforts by being connected to church planting, that other churches might plant as a result of our ministry. Make us an externally focused, internally caring church, that you might be pleased with us, that you might receive glory from us, that the light of the gospel would go forth. Because we have been faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.